So, do any of you ever get insecure about your faith? To be clear, I, I don't actually mean moments of doubt or uncertainty about God or our relationship to the divine. Actually, I think that those are an expression of our faith, not its absence. What I mean is that living in a country where Christianity is so frequently equated to a violent, fascist, white evangelicalism, do you ever find yourself acting like somehow our faith is the one that's twisting God's words? And listen, I, I know in my bones that Jesus was not preaching that foolishness. I believe with all that I am and all that I have in a God who is presently at work for universal liberation. I've studied my scriptures, I read my theology, I studied it in some original languages, but then suddenly I will find myself at a barbecue and someone will ask what I do for a living and instead of just saying, I'm a minister, they're gonna get a whole thesis project. I'm a minister at this church in the East Village in New York City, no, not that kind of minister. This church is super queer, it has really good artists, it's active in organizing for justice, and it hosts anti-racist education classes. I'll go on and on and start noticing the vaguely glazed look in the eyes of the person who just wanted to know what I did for a living. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I, I know why I do that. And if you answer something similar when someone asks if you're religious, I understand why you do that too. In a cultural landscape where Christianity carries assumptions about homophobia, transphobia, racism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, ecological subjugation, economic exploitation, we want to make it clear, no, 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 I'm not that kind of Christian. But I've begun to fear that when that's our habitual reflexive reaction, we frame the true gospel, Jesus' lived word that beckons the world toward freedom, as if it were some kind of deviation from the faith, when it's actually the rising Christian fascism that so clearly violates both God's love and the Bible. Reading our scripture today, we find the prophet Jeremiah amid similar circumstances, but in order to understand just how deeply Jeremiah's questions resonate with our own time, we need to know a little bit about the history that surrounds his words. Jeremiah is writing in the middle of the Babylonian exile. After Babylon sacked the city of Jerusalem, they forced the Israelites to leave their homeland and marched them into the capital city of Babylon. It's unclear when exactly Jeremiah's testimony is recorded, but biblical scholars believe it happened sometime within that 70 years of captivity. And 70 years is long enough that surely many of the folks in exile began to wonder if they would ever see their home again. In the middle of this trauma, forced migration coupled with uncertainty about any kind of future hope, Jeremiah and other theologians are offering answers about what caused this calamity, about what people can do to restore their homeland that they long to return to. One of the dominant interpretations is that God caused this suffering to punish the Israelites for their unfaithfulness. If we're honest, this is a place that our minds can go to in a time of crisis. Paradoxically, it can almost feel like a comfort to blame ourselves because the only thing that is less tolerable than being responsible for a tragedy is the truth that sometimes bad things happen to good people, too. But Jeremiah is doing something else in this passage that I want to focus on this morning. Reflecting on the horror that has unfolded, Jeremiah puts these words into God's mouth. 
How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own minds? They think that the dreams they tell one another will make my people forget my name. And here we get something closer to the truth. God does not will anyone to suffer. The people's pain and trauma are not caused by God, but by people who have lied in God's name, conspiring to make all of us forget the kind of love that God demands, the claims for justice that God has placed on all of our lives. The exile in Jeremiah's retelling doesn't actually begin with the destruction of Jerusalem. It begins the moment that people start to lie about God. And whew, if that does not resonate with the kind of exile we find ourselves in now. Lies about God have grown so thick that they entomb our Bibles like a pernicious womb, birthing oppression instead of liberation. And if Satan is the father of lies, daddy's been busy. I mean, just look around at the cultural conversation we're having around abortion bans. I mean, still, even in mainstream publications like the New York Times, I see articles with headlines like, why repealing Roe is a win for religious voters, framing the gutting of people's fundamental health care and bodily autonomy as if it were a victory for God. I spoke recently with a friend who's eight months pregnant in a state where abortion is banned in all circumstances. It's banned in all the neighboring states, too. I asked her how she was doing, and she told me bluntly about her fears, that something would go wrong with the pregnancy, and that there would be nothing that the doctors could legally do to save her life. What do you do in these circumstances? You can't just get into a car and drive to the neighboring state? This is supposed to be the justice that God desires? Elsewhere, I read about Christian fascists who've created baby drop boxes, you know, the kind of receptacles where you might put an overdue library book, for babies. So people who did not want to have a baby can be forced to have that baby, and then anonymously place the baby in a bin. And we're supposed to believe that this is the world that God wants? On Friday, I saw two buses full of migrant neighbors who Greg Abbott sent up from Texas to punish New York for our loving immigration laws. And I saw New Yorkers of all faiths coming together to offer welcome and food and clothing and legal aid. Both of those people, Greg Abbott and us, are making claims about God. But you tell me where is God living? This is not a question without consequences. Last week marked the 10-year anniversary of the massacre at the Oak Creek Gurdwara. And synagogues like the one that we are worshiping in right now have to take extreme measures of protection because too many have followed Christian fascism to its only conclusion, extermination. Over and over again, we see this kind of savagery justified by invoking the divine name. Want to cap the price of insulin? Well, maybe God wants people to go into medical debt to teach them about personal responsibility. Want to cut emissions that are destroying God's creation? Actually, God told us to subdue and dominate nature. Want to ban the weapons that are slaughtering our children and our neighbors? Actually, God wants every person to be armed. You know, if Jesus had an AR-15, maybe he wouldn't have been crucified. 
that's a literal thing that Lauren Boebert said. A congressperson. Lie after lie after lie about God. Lie that serves, lies that serve patriarchy. Lies that serve white supremacy. Lies that make people forget who God is and what God demands. Is it any wonder that so many of us talk about our faith with a laundry list of disclaimers? But into this mess, Jeremiah's voice calls out again. How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets? A cry in the wilderness. A yearning for the living God. But Jeremiah also offers a prescription. Remember who God is. Who God has always been. Who can hide in the secret places so I cannot see them, asks God. When we live into the truth of who God is, that is what allows us to dispel the falsehoods that have been told about Jesus. In a world where those lies have crucified him again and again, truth becomes our resurrection. And now I invite Jackie up to talk a little bit about, more about who that God is that we need to remember. Thank you so much, Ben. Jeremiah's word from God continues on in this pericope in the message version. I've had it with prophets who preach the lies they dream up, spreading them all over the country, ruining the lives of my people with their cheap, reckless lies. I never sent these prophets, never authorized a single one of them, they do nothing for this people, nothing. Jeremiah's call is a call to true religion, to true connectedness, to binding ourselves together with God, which is what religion actually means, to bind together, to build a just and moral and loving and peace-filled society, a world in which children are cherished and have clean water to drink and food in their bellies and clothes on their backs and safe streets in which to play. A world in which older people don't have to choose between their housing payments and their health care. A world in which the Supreme Court and our electeds are not allowed to impose a white nationalist so-called Christian agenda on the rest of us in a pluralistic nation. Amen. An anti-racist world in which all the bodies, no matter skin tone or physiognomy, no matter language or nationality, no matter which faith or no faith at all, no matter sexuality and gender, all the bodies are seen as beautiful representations of the image of God in the world. Jeremiah's calling is a call to truth. And I can hear some folks saying now, and I'm going to get it in my, in my inbox, right? <laughs> saying now, how do you know? How do you know which one's the truth? How do you know? How can you tell? As was true then and is true now, there will always be prophets and preachers and teachers who teach two kinds of lies. One is the feel-good lie. 
Here's how this one goes. No matter how much the world is suffering, no matter how many immigrants are held in detention centers, which are actually jails, no matter how many are shipped up from Texas into this state or into DC, no matter what, feel good, y'all, feel good. Because you're a Christian and you go to church and you're a Christian in your heart and everything is going to be all right. No matter how many people live below the poverty line, no matter how many little black boys are profiled by their you know, nursery school teachers, and no matter how many black bodies are shot in the streets, no matter how large the wage gap is between blacks and whites, feel good because you're a Christian in your heart and everything is gonna be all right. The feel-good lie allows us to look away from suffering. It allows us to, in fact, tell ourselves the reason they're suffering is because there's something wrong with them. They didn't pray hard enough. They didn't do the right thing. They're not holy enough to survive and have a good life. The feel-good lie says to us, as long as it doesn't touch our families, it just doesn't matter. We stand outside of injustices because we are not in it together and we don't have to think about them at all. We might say a prayer for them, but we might not. The feel-good lie claims that there is peace when there is injustice and Jeremiah is saying where there is no justice, there is no peace. And where is that's bad? The bigger lie, I think the biggest lie of all is this one. Are you ready? You know what it is. God is white. <laughs> God is white. Sorry, but it's true. God is white. God is white, heterosexual, male, rich, and powerful because this God has been created in their own image. And this God that is Christian also hates all the other religions, hates all the people who are not Christian, and also only likes the kind of Christian that likes whiteness. This lie says that Christianity is a small country club religion with maybe 144,000 folks going to heaven and the rest of us are all going to hell. And our job is to make sure, make sure we're in the number so we don't get left out when the rapture comes. <laughs> this white God has a growing congregation and his prophets, because he is a he and he does have a penis, have created God in their image and they have hymns and prayers and rituals and policies and talking points and conferences about how to put on the whole armor of guard and protect whiteness at all costs. These white nationalist Christian-ish ideologies put anti-Muslim, anti-Semitic, anti-Black, anti-Hispanic, anti-queer right in the center of public discourse, claiming the airwaves to spew hatred. And then we who believe in freedom are supposed to believe maybe our brand of Christianity isn't the gospel. After all, this lie makes folks feel special and important. This lie is the empire lie. It's not a new lie. It's the lie that oppresses the nations and calls it a Roman peace. It's the lie that creates a papal bull that says, hey, nice white people, 
please get on boats, go to the lands where the dark heathens live, take the lands and make them Christian. It's the doctrine of discovery lie. It's the Holocaust causing, apartheid causing, death dealing lie. Land grabbing, enslavement lie. It's death. And it has got to go. It's got to go. Jeremiah's challenge to us is to remember who God is, to put God back together again. <laughs> for who God is, in our imaginations, in our hearts, to rediscover the God of liberation, the God of justice, the God of generosity, the God of love, the God of healing, and the God of wholeness. A God who rescues exiles and delivers them even from this lying land in which we find ourselves and returns them to their best self, to their holiest, most whole self. Jeremiah is calling the church home from our exile in this land of lies, for us not to be the church of the world, but to be the church creating a world, a world in which love is the ethic that guides our life. That's why Middle Church's vision statement says, in part, Middle Church affirms the transformative power of moral imagination, reclaiming and reframing Christianity in our walls, on the streets, and in the digital spaces around the globe. That's an ambitious vision, y'all. But it's the one you wrote. <laughs> you wrote it, you did it, you said it. And we don't just stick it up on some whiteboard and read it every now and then. We are trying to preach this gospel of reclaim and reframe. We're trying to live out this gospel of rebuild and restore. And we're going to do it with your help. And we're going to do it together. And we are not going to rest until we get back to the teachings of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus that apply to humankind, not to Christians. Do you feel me? Ain't nobody, I don't care how you call yourself. Rabbi Jesus' teaching is love your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you don't believe in God, I, we don't care. Believe in love. Believe in love. Believe in love. Love, period. Because everything else is what? Everything else is commentary. That's right. So we, middle family, are going to get back to Yeshua, our rabbi, our, our mentor, our teacher. And we're going to ask ourselves always, what would Jesus do? What would love, what would love have us do? It is our calling to disrupt fake Christianity. I'm going to say that again. It's our calling to disrupt fake Christianity. It's our calling to disrupt fake Christianity. And we're not going to be nice about it. We're not going to be at the dinner table hearing some BS, bad stuff, that <laughs> causes us to be bigoted toward our neighbor and keep our mouths closed in the name of niceness. We are not going to stand idly by why, in the name of Jesus, the corruption in the church kills more and more people. We are not going to stand by. 
We are going to break it down by the sermons we preach and the music we sing and the gatherings we have and the way we move in the world and the way we teach our little people and what we say in social media and what we do on the streets. We are going to put an end to the death-dealing, fascist, pretend, fake, white, nationalist, Christian-ish movement. And we are going to do it starting right now. We're going to take it to the polls. We're going to take it to the streets. We're going to take it to the dinner table. We are not going to allow fascism to hijack our love. Somebody say amen. amen. Come on, Ben. Ben's going to come up and somebody say amen again. <laughs> Okay. I'm undone. Are we done? No, I said, I'm undone. <laughs> so what is the kind of love that takes us from these lies to the truth about Jesus? Um, when I was younger, I thought being nice, being Christian, meant silent, quiet assent to BS. What it actually is, is that we are required to have a temple tantrum when we see some stuff that's going down that's wrong, we are required to mobilize some anger and some disgust and some disappointment and stop being mammy-pammy and pretending like everything goes because it does not. Amen. Well, and the thing that I love that you're talking about here is that it's getting back to the, 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 the real Jesus. Yes, right. I mean, you have these people who are, you know, the Mike, Mike Flynn and his Reawaken America tour right. talking about, oh, we need to put on the armor of God. Well, God didn't put on armor. Right. That's right. God put on some like little brown baby flesh, some stinky diapers, and then grew up <laughs> and put on love. If God wanted to come as a conqueror, God would have come as a conqueror, right. and God chose not to. And that should, if we're Christians, inform the way that we move through the world. Absolutely, Ben. I'm just going to say, put it right here. Put it right here and make it plain. There's too much at stake, too much at stake for us to pretend that hating our neighbor is what Jesus wants. There's too much at stake for us to imagine that God who created us all in love, in God's image, somehow didn't create queer people queer. There's too much at stake to not imagine the beautiful diversity of God's creation around race and ethnicity is by design. And we have to love all the people all the time. We're going to love the hell out of these people. Hell yeah. Amen. <laughs>